Welcome back to the Vine Church podcast. Today we are continuing our study, The God Who Loves, exploring the doctrine of the Trinity. If you haven't already, you can find us on YouTube at the Vine Church Odium and Church Crookham, and would love to have you join us over there. Well, good evening, everybody, and good evening if you're here, good evening if you're watching on YouTube. Uh, as I always say, it's fantastic to have you, and there is a handout in the description if you're on YouTube, and hopefully with you if you're here. Uh, feel free to leave a comment on YouTube or a question, and there will be questions at the end, but it's fantastic to have you all here. As we finish off this series now, which is really weird, I was thinking earlier, it's been five weeks, it's crazy, but yeah, here we are for part five of The God Who Loves, and tonight we're going to be looking at the Trinitarian Gospel how the gospel that we believe is Trinitarian. There is no other gospel. And so it's called the God who saves. Now, the thing is, when we talk about the gospel, we are talking about good news. But good news assumes bad news. If you think about it like this, someone says, I found my pen. If they hadn't lost a pen, then that's not good news. That's just neutral news. So the good news kind of assumes that there is some bad news. So in order to look at the good news, we're going to just remind ourselves of the bad news. How can a sinner stand before a holy God? You know, that's the question that we, we need to think about. So the problem is I cannot stand before a holy God and expect anything but judgment. I have no righteousness of my own, and I need to be righteous if I'm going to be in his presence. That's the problem that we're all faced with. Now, there are loads of different religions which don't have a concept of the Trinity, and yet they all seem to have a path of salvation, a way of being made right with God. So let's look at some of these non-Trinitarian paths of salvation. First, let's look at Mormonism. Now, I kind of alluded to this the other uh, few weeks ago, but Mormonism, I don't think people realize quite how odd and distinct from Christianity Mormonism is. In Mormonism, God the Father who is not in a trinity, a singular person, was once a spirit who then became a man, and through obedience to the law, he then became God. And so then he created the world, had loads of spirit children, we are his spirit children, we then went into the world, and now we have that same hope, that we can become gods. So because God became God through law-keeping, guess what we have to do in order to become gods? Law-keeping. We are made right with God, through obedience to the law. There is no sense in which Jesus acts on our behalf, at least not in a final sense. There's some kind of divine aid, some help there. Another one to look at is uh, Jehovah's Witnessism. Now, Jehovah's Witnessism is uh, obviously quite a well-known cult, uh, and they don't have a concept of the Trinity either. They are Unitarians. They believe there is one God who is one person. Now, they would say that faith is sufficient for salvation. But they would not say that faith is the cause of salvation. So you need to have faith in order to be saved. You can't be saved without it. But faith is, if you like, the springboard from which we do all our works, and the works are what save you. So if you ever wonder why Jehovah's Witnesses are so diligent and motivated to be doing evangelism, we might look at that and say, that's really good that there are missional people. We should be more like that. And in fairness, that is something to, to aspire to. But at the same time, they're doing it because evangelism is one of those works by which you can be saved. So we need faith, but our works save us. It's very, very similar to another group that you might have heard of, might not, 
called Oneness Pentecostalism. This is a, a, a heretical Christian group. Now, they believe that, again, they're modalists. If you remember, we looked at modalism a few weeks ago, ice, water, steam. One God, one person who appears in different modes. Now, again, in Oneness Pentecostalism, it's you need to have faith, but then your works save you. Some quite major, quote-unquote, Christian preachers are Oneness Pentecostalists, and a lot of people just brush it off as though it was a, a minor thing, but it, it's a whole different gospel. You need faith, but works save us. And finally, Islam. Now, in Islam, this isn't me, um, this isn't me strawmanning them. Uh, you know, I've watched uh, debates between Muslim scholars and, and Christians, and the Muslim would say that one of their issues they have with Christianity is our kind of our pride, or what they'd call pride, in our assurance of salvation. Because in Islam, you can't actually be sure that when you die, you go to heaven. What you can do is live a life in obedience to Islam, which means submission, so in submission to Allah, and then hope that you've done enough so that at the end, you can go to heaven. But you cannot have any assurance. So all we're basically doing is working to give ourselves the best chance at salvation. There is no security. The best they can do is try their hardest. Now, notice the similarity between all these four. The big thing that unites all of these views, very different religions, one is Pentecostalists and nothing like Muslims. Jehovah's Witnesses are nothing like Mormons. The one thing that unites all of them is works. Salvation by works. And because in all of these schemes, at the core, there is a disinterested God. There is the God that sits out there and waits for us to come to him. He doesn't really care if you're saved or not. In fact, there's quite a, a stark illustration of this in, the, uh, in one of the hadiths, which are um, Islamic holy texts, where God strikes a man on his shoulder in a vision, and out of one shoulder, ants come out, and they're, they're black ants. And it says, these are the ones who are destined to hell, and I care not. And then he strikes the other shoulder, and white ants come out, and he says, these are the ones destined to heaven, and I care not. So in other words, God's saying, they go to hell, they go to heaven, don't care. There's, it's just disinterest. And so, as I say, in all of these, at the core you have a disinterest to God, the God who has to wait for us to come to him. Now, when we then turn to the Trinitarian view, we find something very, very different. Because the very, very beginning of the Trinitarian view of the gospel starts before God even says, let there be light. Before God even begins to create, the Trinitarian gospel already has begun because God is a God who is overflowing with love. That's how our gospel starts. The God who is overflowing with love and life and power chooses to create and redeem in order to bring people to himself. It's very, very different. You know, think about how um, John expresses it in 1 John 4. We love because he first loved us. Well, when's the first loving us? That's before eternity began. Ephesians 1 makes the same point. That's where the Trinitarian gospel starts. God's love overflowing. We start with the interested God, the God who cares. So that's obviously a really important starting point. And from there, we see that kind of this, this Trinitarian concept of salvation is about receiving the righteousness of God through faith so that it all may be God's at the end, for God's glory, through God's work, in order to get to God by God. It was all from God. It was God's intention for his glory. It all comes from this overflow of the love of God. You know, I want to make this point. It starts with the love of God, 
because it starts with the God of love. It starts with the love of God because it starts with the God of love. This means that we have good news. All the other views are news. You need to do this, do that, do that, and eventually you'll get to God. Okay, that gives me something to work on. But we are given good news. God is pursuing us. It's a really big deal. And so as we move into that, let's, t- let's see how this practically happens. How does God actually enact salvation? And there's this concept we're going to talk about. There's kind of a bridge that needs to be crossed from us to get to God. And there's two sides to that bridge. So let's, uh, let's look at those two sides. On the one side, we need someone else's righteousness. We are not righteous. God is. We need that righteousness. There needs to be an exchange. But the other side, we are sinners. God is holy. So we need to have our sins forgiven, but we also need to have righteousness given to us. We can't approach God unless those two are met. There needs to be an exchange. Someone righteous needs to take our place, and we need to receive their righteousness. They need to receive our sin. And so we need a savior. And obviously, we know who our savior is. We don't have to be um, ignorant about it. We know that we have Christ And there is a necessity that we understand that Christ is both God and man. And obviously you can only have that concept if you have the Trinity. It's important to know the deity and the humanity of Christ. This is what, if you read Hebrews, chapters 1 and 2 are all about this. It starts chapter 1 by talking about Christ being God, and we looked at that a few weeks ago. Quotes all these psalms about Christ Christ being God. These are what they need to do and need to know. And then immediately in chapter 2, he then talks about the necessity of Christ being human. And then from there, he then uh, does the rest of the book, once we know that Christ is both God and man. Now, I want to show a really good way that this has been expressed. In the 1500s, there was something called the Heidelberg Catechism that was, was written. Now, a catechism is just question and answer, and they were used to teach children the faith. So, catecheo is the Latin word for to echo. So, I would ask the question, and I would then show the children the answer, and we'd keep doing it, and eventually the children would memorize it. And so, they were, they were written for children. But the Heidelberg Catechism is a particularly wonderful catechism, and I would really recommend, actually, that everyone tries it with their family. Me and Anna do it together every Sunday, and they are they're Um, separated into 52 slots for a Sunday of every day of the year, every Sunday of the year. It's so pastoral, it's so gentle, and it's so rich at the same time. And I just want to read questions 15 to 17 of the Heidelberg Catechism. So, question 15. What kind of mediator and deliverer should we look for then? Answer. One who is a true and righteous human, yet more powerful than all creatures, that is one who is also true God. Question 16. Why must the mediator be a true and righteous human? Answer. God's justice demands that human nature, which has sinned, must pay for sin, but a sinful human could never pay for others. Question 17. Why must the mediator also be true God? Answer. So that the mediator, by the power of his divinity, might bear the weight of God's wrath in his humanity and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. What savior do we need? We need a divine savior and a human savior. Humans have sinned, but only God is righteous. And so 
if you look in every other religion, the non-divine saviors, all they can do is point to God. Do this and you'll get to God. But when Jesus comes along, he doesn't point. He says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Jesus doesn't point us to God. He points us to himself. Jesus preaches Jesus. So why does he need to be man? He needs to be man because mankind are the ones who need to be saved. They are the ones who need a substitute. If you have your Bibles, open up to uh, Hebrews chapter 2. And we'll just uh, see what the author of Hebrews says um, about the humanity of Jesus. So Hebrews 2 verses 14 to 17 says this. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So it says, it's not angels that he helps, but the children of Abraham. In other words, if God was trying to save angels, Jesus would have to come in the likeness of angels. But because he was coming to save humans, he became a human. That's why we need our Savior to be a man. But we also need him to be God. Because no man is perfectly righteous. No man can be sacrificed to give us, or to, to die for our sins, or to um, give us righteousness. No substitute can be found among humans to die for humans. But also because, as we looked at a few weeks ago in Isaiah 43, God is jealous for his glory. God says he will not share his glory with another. In Isaiah 43, he says, apart from me, there is no other savior. It's fitting that the savior is God. But we're also given a promise in Jeremiah 23 that God is going to be the source of our righteousness. So we're not looking for a righteous person to come along. We're looking for God. This is what God says in Jeremiah 23. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will rise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So it's really important that we that our Savior, the one who gives us perfect righteousness, is himself perfectly righteous, which we're not going to find anywhere except for with God. So I've just got a very helpful uh, four-part um, uh, syllogism for us. So part one, if Jesus isn't God, he has a sinful nature and doesn't possess God's righteousness. He has no perfect righteousness to share with us. If that's true, then when Jesus dies, he dies for his own sin. In that case, the cross has not dealt with our sins and it has not given us perfect righteousness. And then part four, therefore we are still in our sins. There we go. So we start, let's go back to part one, Jesus is God. And so when Jesus died, he did die for our sins, not for his own. And therefore he has paid our sin debt and he has given us perfect righteousness. Therefore we are not in our sins if we trust in him. An excellent quote from uh, this book, which I highly recommend, by Peter Lewis, The Glory of Christ. 
and he says this, a savior who is not quite God is a bridge broken at the farther end, while a savior who is not quite man is a bridge broken at the near end. Our savior needs to be both. And obviously through the Trinity, we have that. God the Son has become human. Now, next I want us to look at this uh, a concept called the Trinitarian harmony in redemption. The fact that God is one united um, person, or rather one united being through three persons in his achieving uh, salvation for us. The Trinity is in harmony in redemption. There are different roles. So the Father's role, as we saw a few weeks ago, was to send. He launches this plan of salvation. He's the one who speaks, who commissions. The Son then comes. He lives and he dies. He enacts the plan. He takes it from theory and turns it into practice. The Spirit then regenerates us, and he applies the finished work of Christ to us. Now, there's a progression there. If you you see what that progression is, it kind of goes from theory to practice, to reality for us. It moves from being out there, just in the heavens, to then being on earth in space and time. Jesus has come. And then it goes from being out there in Jerusalem to in here. Starts in heaven, comes down to earth, comes into our hearts individually. If, uh, so yeah, as I say, you see them each happening in their own part. It moves from person to person becomes more inward. It goes from objective to subjective. If the Father wasn't part of it, then salvation never would have been launched. If the Son wasn't part of it, salvation never would have been purchased. If the Spirit wasn't part of it, then it would remain out there. I I mean, I think I said this last week. Jesus dying on a cross doesn't actually affect anything unless the Holy Spirit applies it to us. There are lots of people in the world today who aren't affected by it, we are affected by it because the Spirit of God has done something in our hearts. Now, each person here has a part to play. The Spirit does not die on the cross. The Father does not regenerate. They each have their own part to play, but they work in harmony. They aren't coming to pursue different results. So, in John 6, Jesus says, I have come to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus hasn't come with a task that was kind of vaguely laid out that he's come and thought, right, I'm going to try and find a way to do this my way, or maybe while I'm here, I'll also do this. No, Jesus has come to do what the Father has sent him to do. And then in John 16, Jesus explains that he's sending the Spirit to do what Jesus is sending the Spirit to do. There's a, there's a harmony. They're not trying to achieve different things. They are completely unified in their achieving a salvation for God's elect. It started with the Father, and it is completed by the Spirit. There's the Trinitarian harmony in our redemption. You know, just think about this. If you are here today as a Christian, it's because each person of the Trinity has specifically done something to win you. The Father gave the word, I want them. The Son dies on the cross knowing he was paying for your sin, and the Spirit has uh, enlightened your heart, given you eyes to see him. You are here because God in Trinity has worked to have you as him. Like we were talking about at the beginning, this all starts with the God who is interested, the God who loves, the God who saves. Your salvation began long before God said, let there be light. It's amazing stuff to know that there's that Trinitarian harmony. Now, the result of knowing 
salvation comes from the Trinity, I think we really need to think about God as, as I said at the beginning, kind of overflowing with all his attributes. His love overflows, his power overflows, his holiness is overflowing. And I think there's a really good way of seeing this illustrated. Again, if we, if we open up to Mark, well, not again, but if we open up our Bibles to Mark 5, it's a story that we all probably know quite well. Mark 5, verses 21 to 43. Now, I'm actually going to read the whole thing, and you might be wondering what relevance does this have, but we will see afterwards that it is very relevant. So Mark 5, 21 to 43, the story of the woman with uh, the bleeding problem. So it says this, And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years, who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all she had, and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. Immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? His disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except for Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. When he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? This child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, rise. And immediately the little girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them to, um, that no one should know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Now, what relevance does this story have? Well, there's two things, or maybe three things, or maybe one thing that we see there. One thing, we talked about this a few weeks ago. If, you're, if you are part of the Vine Church and you're watching, then you'll know what I'm talking about. But we've been preaching through Haggai. Now, when I preached on Haggai chapter 2, verses 10 to 19, we saw that there's this concept in the Bible that when you touch something unclean, you become unclean. Uncleanness spreads. And yet the, the message in Haggai is that cleanness does not spread. If you, are, if you have sanctified food, you touch the food, you touch something else, it doesn't become clean. But if you touch a dead body and then touch something else, that does become unclean. And yet notice what Jesus does here. First, he has a woman with an issue of blood, which in the law is unclean, touch him. What happens? 
His cleanness is overflowing and spreads to her. He isn't made unclean. He doesn't become unclean and she clean. No, instead, his holiness, his cleanness spreads out and touches her. Immediately then, he walks into the next building where there is a dead body. Again, that's the example that Haggai uses. If you touch a dead body, you become unclean. And yet he takes her by the hand, and rather than becoming unclean himself, life is transferred into her. His life is overflowing. He doesn't die. Instead, life flows out from him. In both of these stories, you see this eternal, infinite flowing out from him, which heals other people. I think this is a really good image for us to think about the way salvation works. This is a great picture. God's infinite life, infinite love, infinite cleanness is poured out to us. That's a Trinitarian concept because God is not some static monad in heaven who's just sitting there. He's the interested God. He is the community that is overflowing with life. He isn't sharing or dividing himself when he brings us in. It's overflowing. He is infinite. He is an overflowing trinity. Think about it like this. Martin Luther had this quote that I love. The love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. The love of man comes into being through that which is pleasing to it. So what he's saying there is, when we love something, it's because it's lovely. It's because it's lovable. So I love Anna because she is lovely. But God, his love is different to us. He doesn't love something because it's lovely. His love makes it lovable. You know, we have that verse in Romans, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Because God loves us, we have been made holy. Because God is overflowing with life and love, we have been made clean. It's a fantastic concept. And so for all these reasons that we've talked about both this week and last week, God being a God who loves, God being a God who talks, God being a God who solves all the issues that we uh, see, kind of philosophical issues that we see in the world, because salvation is a Trinitarian concept, as I've said before, the New Testament can only be made sense of if you believe in the Trinity. For all these reasons, this is why in the 400s, when there was a creed written called the Athanasian Creed, it says, he who would be saved must think of the Trinity. I'm actually going to read the whole thing out now. This is what the Athanasian Creed says. Whoever will be saved, before all things, it is necessary that he holds the Catholic faith, which faith, unless everyone does keep whole and undefiled, without doubt he shall perish everlastingly. And the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the essence. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Spirit. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit is all one. The glory equal, the majesty co-eternal, such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Spirit. The Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, the Holy Ghost uncreated, the Father unlimited, the Son unlimited, and the Holy Spirit unlimited, the Father eternal, the Son eternal, and the Holy Spirit eternal. And yet there are not three eternals, but one eternal. There are not three uncreated, but three infinites. But one, there is not three uncreated, nor three infinites, but one uncreated and one infinite. So likewise, the Father is almighty, the Son almighty, and the Holy Spirit almighty. And yet there are not three almighties, but one almighty. 
So the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and yet there are not three gods, but one God. So likewise, the Father is Lord, the Son Lord, and the Holy Spirit Lord, and yet there are not three lords, but one Lord. For like as we are compelled by the Christian verity to acknowledge every person by himself to be God and Lord, so we are forbidden by the Catholic religion to say there are three gods or three lords. The Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. The Son is of the Father alone, not made nor created but begotten. The Holy Spirit is of the Father and of the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten but proceeding. So there is one Father, not three fathers, one Son, not three sons, one Holy Ghost, not three Holy Ghosts. And in this Trinity, none is before or another after. None is greater or less than another, but the whole three persons are co-eternal and co-equal. So that in all things, as aforesaid, the unity in Trinity and the Trinity in unity is to be worshipped. Now note this line. He therefore that will be saved, let him thus think of the Trinity. Why do they put that line in? He that would be saved must think of the Trinity. Because the Christian religion is Trinitarian. This isn't something we can have on the side. If you believe that you've been saved by the grace of God through Jesus Christ and regenerated by the Spirit, you are a Christian and you are a Trinitarian. You can neither drop either of those labels. So as we come to the end of this series, I'd want to finish by, again, looking back at that quote that I gave us at the very first part, because as Christians, all our faith is based on this doctrine. And so as John Owen said, the doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence on him. So I hope you've seen that this isn't just something abstract. This isn't something to be uh, found caught up in knots and this is something to enjoy, to appreciate, to love, to know the God who loves, the God who has loved us long before we loved him. Just think about it. If you're here, God waited thousands of years before you would love him back. He loved you thousands of years before you loved him. Insane. So uh, let's, let's pray, and then I'm going to take some questions. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God who loves. Lord, we thank you that when we pray to our Heavenly Father, we're not praying to the one who became a father. We are praying to the one who has ever been Father. Lord, we thank you that you have loved us. Jesus, we thank you that you came and you died for us. We thank you that you enacted the Father's plan of salvation. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that you have regenerated us, Lord, that you have given us eyes to see you, hearts to love you. Lord, that we can fulfill what the psalmist says, that the works of God are studied by all those who delight in him. So Lord, I pray that as we have spent these five parts looking at your nature, that we would be delighting in who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.